want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here. It's good to uh, be in the Sunday school class. I have always enjoyed the book of Romans and it's uh, a pleasure going through it uh, in Sunday school. This morning, uh, actually this morning's message is somewhat a, a um, was somewhat kick-started from last Sunday or the Sunday, previous Sunday's Sunday school lesson. A verse from there, uh, Romans 1, verse 18. Um, I'm going to straighten up this pulpit a bit here. Romans 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this was particularly what caught my attention, and you may remember, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's, you know, we heard Tommy talking this morning about actively seeking God, actively uh, steering away from evil, actively being Christians, okay? Well, here we have God, or Paul talking about the condemnation against, God's condemnation against people who actively suppress truth. Suppress unrighteousness. My thoughts went several different directions from that. But most of all, I thought about our children and how much um, truth there is and how much untruth there is available. I'll give you just a quick little example here. Um, some time ago, we were on the job, and uh, our brother Eric was helping us as uh, in construction, and um, we had a skid steer breakdown. And if you all are familiar with skid steers and the role they play in the contractor or farmer or whoever else used skid steers' lives, you'll recognize that they're a tremendous, tremendous asset. They're a real beast of burden, a real steel beast of burden. Uh, a slave at your fingertips that can be abused and thrives on it and, and does all kinds of things. Makes the role of whatever you're doing so much easier. I remember getting a skid steer when I was, uh, or my brother getting one when I was working on pole barns. And we, it, it took our lives from having to heft everything to where we could uh, calculatedly place things on the skid steer and the skid steer would lift them into place and all we had to do is tamp them. Digging a hole also became much, much easier, uh, almost a pleasure. Uh, there's just so many things. Grading gravel, uh, you know, before would have caused a lot of, uh, a lot more uh, calluses. All of a sudden that became very simple to do. Uh, and so th that skid steer is just, you know, we, we appreciate it quite a bit. Well, we're out in the job and the skid steer broke down. A, a bad hose busted, or a good hose busted that, but it was bad in that it went way, way into the guts of the skid steer. Guts that I didn't even, don't even know about, you know. It just made me, when I saw what had happened, I just had to kind of stand there and mutter unintelligibly, you know, about something's in there, somewhere's hooked up, and... 
Anyways, well, Eric, mechanic as he is, he went onto the internet and he looked up the 287B cat skid steer and the numbers on it and went on into it and what looked to me as a very expensive and difficult situation, Eric, with the help of the internet, a little help from the internet, reduced to a less expensive and less complicated situation. And, um, you know, how, how does that pertain to this? Well, he found some truth on the internet, okay? Um, he found a very accurate sketch of how the skidster was constructed. He was able to take numbers from that, get the right parts, know how to pull the right pieces off, put them back on, and uh, put them back on without, you know, having a lot of extra pieces left over, uh, which is a talent he has that I don't quite. Uh, but there was, you know, there he found truth. But he could have, he could have went onto the internet and looked around, and I'm sure found a lot of untruth there too. Um, maybe found ways not to do it. Well, this morning I'd like to, I'm, I would like to think especially of our children. Um, and, and the message is titled, Leading Our Children to Truth. You know, there's a lot of levels uh, that we can't unsuppress truth. We see political plays take place that we find troubling, corruption uh, in the courtroom or social injustices. Uh, we can pray, but there's not, there's not anything else really we can do beyond that that we're called to do. And as it's, been, as it's been said, that's the most we can do. The best we can do is to pray. Um, but there are places that, that we can unsuppress truth. Okay? That we can really let truth flourish, bring truth to, to the forefront, and, and uh, make it uh, easy to understand. And that's with us as parents or anyone in a position that he's an example to a younger one or to a brother even to, uh, to lead, but I'm especially thinking of us parents, leading um, our children into truth, helping them to discern um, the differences between truth and untruth because we have lots of information and we need to find out what is the real truth and what is just information that's really not valuable and can even be really harmful. And as parents, we're particularly called to fill that, fulfill that role. So I have four, I have four points here that we can, and four ways that we can lead our children into truth. First one is by example. Hannah's example of prayer. I like, was reading here in First uh, Samuel two, and I'd like to read a portion from there. Let's turn to that First Samuel two. And read one through twenty-one. Here's uh, Hannah's prayer of praise and exaltation. Um, it follows her prayer of anguish that she didn't have a son, and the Lord rewarded her, and 
she had promised her son to the service of the temple. So she lends her son to the service of the temple. And this is her prayer that accompanies. First uh, Samuel 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumble are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves up for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength, no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven, he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, at Ramah but the ch child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And then going on, speaking of the wicked sons of Eli, verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when a man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then... You may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their home, and the Lord visited Hannah, so she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So going back to Hannah's example here, um, you know, she didn't go and say, Okay, Eli, or I mean, uh, Samuel, I'm going to do this and then you do like I do. And I'm going to do that, then you do like I did that. Uh, she was actually gone. She left Samuel there. And I don't know how old Samuel was. I would expect he was pretty young, maybe six, maybe seven. I don't know. Maybe some of you have a better idea. But she was gone. But somehow that young lad knew that he had a mother that really loved the Lord and really trusted in the Lord. And um, she, it says in verse, it's a really neat story. I really enjoy reading that account. But in verse 19, more of his mother used to make him a little robe. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to verse 18. 
Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a, le- wearing a linen ephod. And I imagine he was a cute little guy there, you know, wearing his linen ephod. He was set to look like a little priest, I, I think is what his mother did. And, and then his mother made him a little robe each year. And, she, when she, and brought it to him when she came up to, off, to offer the yearly sacrifice with her husband. So it, it appears like once a year, his mother, mother came up to visit Samuel. And I, it, it kind of goes beyond me to, uh, and I'm sure it goes beyond uh, my wife and, and the mothers here to, to think about doing that, lending a son to the temple like that. But I believe when Samuel was ministering there, his mother was leading by example through her tears and her sacrifice. You know, that, that little robe that she made each year, I don't think was something that was easy to come by, especially her being a young mother with five more children, it appears. She wasn't able to go to Amazon Prime and make that purchase or go to Goodwill and find, you know, we had a, recently we had a dress-up evening and uh, it was interesting what all came about there, but it's a lot of work went into some of those, but I think for her probably even making the fabric was something she had to do. Um, I doubt fabric was available on the market. Um, that I'm speculating, but I, I would imagine that was the case. That little robe represented a lot of sacrifice, but even more was that of her giving her son to this work. She was leading him by example. Committing to the, our children to the Lord is, is never as easy as it sounds, and it's often much more difficult than we could ever imagine. I, I remember one thing that stands in my memory is, is my Aunt Marie. And being after service there in Seymour, she had come back uh, following John's death. John was killed there in, in Guatemala. She had come back with a, a family of five, a young widowed um, mother. And uh, she, had t- she had a set of twins, two young girls. And it was a, it was a challenge getting for her to get everyone ready for church and to get everyone to the church. And I, I remember overhearing a conversation where one of the ladies, and I don't even remember who it was, asked her, uh, Marie, why do you, why do you, you know, you wouldn't have to, we wouldn't think bad of you if you, if you didn't make it to church some evenings with, with all you have going on and so forth. And um, I think she was trying to be helpful. Um, so my aunt would know she's not being overloaded. And... Um, Marie answered, and, and the, I don't recall the exact statement, but she said, but it was to the effect, how will my children learn the importance of, of church if I, if I don't come when it's inconvenient? And uh, I was just a little taught then, but I, I remember that statement. It made a, a profound impact in my little head. It was like, here's someone that's really committed, because I knew she was, she was so busy. Um, it was a sacrifice for her. Today you may know one of those twins at least. She's married to a fine young man called Marvin Miller. 
uh, Sharon and faithfully serving in Severin, North Carolina. But, you know, we, we often think, when we often look around us and for the big example of, of leading and of, of, for example, but I think it's often closer to home. God calls us individually as parents to lead by example, by sacrificial commitment. He calls us to that. Number two, teach them to respect truth spoken into their lives and of consequences. Maybe a shorter version of that would be don't shield them from truth. Don't shield them from truth. Because in a sense, when we shield our children from truth, we're suppressing truth, aren't we? And for, for, a, um, for an illustration of this, I'd like to look a little more at Eli's sons here. You know, they certainly weren't being godly examples of temple servants. They, there's no doubt about that. They were corrupt. They forced the people to do things contrary to what they were supposed to do in, in worship, their form of worship. Eli says this about them, or said this to them, uh, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Verse 23. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If a man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And then in verse 27, it says, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And he goes on talking to them about how that the Lord had brought them out of Egypt and now Eli is, Eli's sons are corrupting the temple after all that the Lord had done for them and... and um, Eli's response was, 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 well, it wasn't after this point. We don't, we don't read of a response to his sons. He really doesn't seem like he went to them, or he may have, but it's not recorded. But if you look at Hophni and Phinehas here, Eli's sons, sons of a seemingly good priest or a godly priest, and you look at the warning that God gave to Eli of judgment against his sons, and because of his son's disobedience and, and also involving Eli's house, he told, he told him there wouldn't be a man standing in as a priest uh, uh, forever. He had given them the promise earlier that they would always have a man standing as a priest, but God withdrew that promise. Eli, instead of taking corrective action towards his sons, it, uh, simply gave them a stern rebuke and it seemed like he just backed up and let them do their thing. And we could, kind of, we could say, well, you know, that's all Eli could do. Maybe he was overpowered. Maybe he was intimidated by his sons. Maybe um, he loved his sons too much um, to dismiss them from serving the temple. Or maybe, you know, it was inevitable. But... I think whenever we have a warning, we can be assured that God is giving us some time yet. 
Um, read the story of Jonah. You know, Jonah was sent to Nineveh with a warning to the people. And even as Jonah went, it seems like he had it in his mind that God was a merciful God and would save if this people repented. He talks about that at the very end of Jonah, how that, he, he even accused God of that, how that he knew God is a God of mercy and, and he was so upset about that that he repented. And I believe Eli could have taken some serious action when he had these warnings and um, you know, done what he could have to, to change that situation. Clearly, action should have been taken when Eli's sons were much younger. The way it was, um, Eli's lack of response coupled with his son's corruption caused a lot of grief for Israel. A lot of loss of life and resulted in a severe judgment eventually in, in Eli's family. These sons clearly had, begin, had been given enough rain in the temple service to believe that the temple was serving them and not they serving the temple. And this was an untruth. This was an untruth and, and Eli should have, as a father, taken responsibility to let them know that. It's easy in looking back and saying, you know, this is what Eli should have done. But sometimes I believe as parents, it's not so easy to stand up and as a father, mother, say, it's very clear what needs to be done here and to really dig in and do what's best. Give truth to our children. Are we teaching our children about consequences? There's no merit in shielding them. Consequences will come sooner or later for bad behavior, and it's much better to catch them when they're small. Disobedience always brings grief. Why not stand up for truth and give the appropriate measures that we can give of grief to help change that bad behavior and to make them see the, help children see the benefits of good behavior? Um, I think it's a good idea. It's biblical. And it's our obligation where we can intervene and help children understand consequences. We should do that. Disobedience not dealt with turns into rebellion. Rebellion not dealt with turns into bitterness. Bitterness not dealt with is a cancer to the mind, heart and soul that leads to deadness and death. Those are my thoughts. Someone else might put it differently, but I believe that that uh, disobedience is the is the starting point toward a very very uh, um, unwanted end. You know, one of the reasons again that children have parents is to give them direction. I think that's the primary reason children have parents. God could have just made children grow in a garden or whatever, but He didn't. He brought them into homes with parents. And parents have responsibility. Not the school, not the state, but parents. And I believe as parents, we'll all give account for the direction we've given our children or the seeming lack of direction. But that in itself can be translated to bad direction when there's lack of direction. This morning I'm talking to myself. I'm don't feel like this is 
pointed at anyone here. It's, it's a, something I see as a needful message for us with children. Um, we have so much information. We have so much um, possibility for error that I think we have, particularly in this day and age, we're, we're called to, uh, to really dig in. The Bible command for children to obey their parents, and I've said this before, will have to be taught by to the or to the children by the parents. The Bible command for children to obey their parents will have to be taught to the children by the parents. So we read in Ephesians, children obey your parents. And it would be great if we could just show that verse to our children and say, look, this is what you're supposed to do. You know, um, show this to your five-year-old or six-year-old that's just learning to read and everything goes from there. It's great. You know, they read it in the Bible. But that's not the way it works. It takes, it takes effort to teach our children to obey. And it's the parents' obligation to teach their children to obey. Because really what we're doing is, for our children is sparing them by giving them little lessons, by helping them to learn to obey, we're sparing them from much harder lessons later on. I sat across the table from a, a uh, businessman who supplies certain products for us and uh, listened to a story that just brought tears to my eyes and made my heart ache. Um, this young man was had been in seminary and... Um, he had, he had a real, he had a real capacity for teaching. Um, but at some point in time, uh, he shared his story with me. He he became involved in pornography, and um, he was also a public ed teacher, and that led to eventually him taking uh, indecent indecent uh, liberties with a student which dismissed him from his job. And when everything became known, his wife left him, he lost his children, and he was, had basically had to start his life over again. Um, today he's on fire for the Lord, and he still struggles, as uh, he would say, as an addict. Um, and my... What I'm saying this for is that that as parents, had his parents been there for him, I don't know exactly what the relationship was, but had they been there for him, and I'm not saying that every time a child takes a wrong step or a misstep or goes the wrong direction, it's the parent's fault. I, not, it's children eventually have to make their own decisions, and I, I. Uh, <laughs> Understand that, and 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 uh, I know it causes terrible grief to parents who whose children take make wrong decisions. But you know, I think in this case he was he was pretty young when he became involved in this habit, and uh, you know maybe maybe had his parents stepped in, maybe if there had been more involvement, he could have been saved such a hard lesson. He says it was the mercy of God that he was found out. 
because he said if that wouldn't have happened, he'd probably be uh, in bars today, behind bars today. But that, what, I'm, what I'm getting at again is by teaching our children little lessons, by us really stepping in there, teaching them truth, not suppressing the truth, not hiding the consequences from them, we can spare them, possibly, very possibly spare them from much, much harder lessons later on. Number three, teach them the power of discipline to achieve purpose. The power of discipline to achieve purpose. And I uh, look to Jeremiah 35 for an example of this. Here's the account of the Rechabites. The Lord taught or tried to teach the house of Israel one little lesson here with the Rechabites. Um, and I don't think they learned it. But anyways, the Lord, the Lord was uh, faithful in giving them a lesson. The Rechabites were a semi-nomadic Kenite group related to Moses' father-in-law. Uh, so if you remember Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, this, these Rechabites were most likely a, a group either directly related or maybe cousins to the, the Kenites or, or to Jethro. They were a sojourning people that had a culture of living off the land. It seems like they didn't care to own property. They had their livestock, their sheep, their goats, whatever else they had. They most likely knew the herbs of the field and, and used those for medical purposes. They didn't live with excess, didn't like excess, and didn't care to have excess, it seemed like, in their, in their culture. And when I say excess, they didn't care to have the trappings of, of um, a house or of um, even vineyards, so forth, because uh, it kept them at the same place if they started doing this, this type of thing. They wanted to be able to move about. And there might have been a spiritual part there. I don't know exactly why the father, Rechab, set up the, the guidelines he did. There might have been a spiritual part of it to it as well. But here's the, here's the test. The Lord calls, in, in Jeremiah 35, verse 5, uh, the Lord calls Jeremiah to, or, or tells Jeremiah to call in the, the Rechabites, the princes of Rechab, to come in and he's to offer them wine in the, in the house of, of some Israelite princes. And Jeremiah says this in verse 5, Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, nor you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these, but all your days shall you dwell in tents that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, or our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have, a vi nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and have done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. And then the Lord commends the Rechabites for this. 
or their obedience. And he says to Jeremiah, look, they listened to their dad so many years before and uh, tell this people that I've sent a messenger to them and they won't even let today and they won't even hear him. They won't even hear you. And then the Lord gives us blessing. Well, maybe I'll read verse 18 too. Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. How different from the curse that was put on Eli and his sons. Here again, purpose is a powerful motivator. But good purpose is even better. So we can decide, like Uncle Joe talked about this morning, that the alternative to not uh, taking the shots and so forth uh, is not good. And so therefore he'll do that. And that's commendable. I appreciate his discipline in that. Um, but the, the, when you have a motivator that's overarching, um, that's spiritual, where you're, this is where we want to be with our family. This is where we want our children to be. Um, and because of that, we'll take the discipline to get there. Uh, that's, that's, that becomes very, a very powerful guiding um, compass. For example, we could urge or advise or compel our children to save money for many, many good reasons. Uh, to buy a car, to help with schooling, to buy tools, to help buy a house, whatever. And those are all good reasons. We could all, that's a good motivator, okay? Um, but what about, and I'm not trying to get too idealistic here, but it's biblical, okay? What about if we taught our children to work hard and save so that they'll have to give to those who have need? Like it says in Ephesians 4.28. And I know that we have need even uh, with our own, okay? We, we have to put food on the table. We have to keep clothes on ourselves and our children. We, we have to keep a roof over our heads, so forth, keep transportation. But... What about if we, you know, instead of telling our children that we need to save money for this need, what about if we have even the greater, present the greater need uh, that we're able to give to those who have need? And that's not just money. Uh, I'm, just bear with me as I, as I kind of sort through this, and I hope, hope it'll make sense. Luke 12, 31 says, But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So God wants us, the Lord wants to supply our needs. He, he really wants us to have what we need. And He's not, He doesn't have a set that, you know, everyone should have this. He, he basically knows what we need, each individual, I believe, and He will supply, it says. When we have a good purpose, a holy purpose, the temporal is brought into perspective. So when we have a, a holy, a spiritual purpose, it brings the temporal, the day-to-day, -day, the 
need to need into perspective. The, the questions such as come to our minds when we, when we have a larger purpose, do I really need this? Does it really fit into my long-term goal? Will this really make my house, my car, my whatever better? Or is it just an add-on? Is it just something to build my self-esteem and really doesn't help uh, my long-term goal? Is this lifestyle really worth it? You know, what can I do to help others? These questions become, begin coming to my, our minds. How can I give to others? Um, becomes a, a large, becomes a focus point. Instead of the destination being a step toward the next thing, the things begin, begin facilitating the journey to our destination. Does that make sense? You know, we have a, a larger goal. We want to meet needs of others. And so these things that come into our lives become, begin facilitating that. The phone becomes a tool, and instead of an expensive pastime, and dangerous pastime even, the dependable car becomes a mean, means of meeting needs instead of maybe a status symbol or whatever else. The furniture a means of providing hospitality. Not saying that these things can't be nice and be done nicely, but they're not for, that's not our, that's not our end goal. The schooling, a tool of learning to enable us to give to those who have need, not to enable us to live a life of, of selfishness. The point is we need to teach our children that their lives will be no greater than their purpose. And if they're lucky, it'll be that great. Uh, we need to teach our children their lives won't be greater than their purpose. And if their purpose is simply a hot car and something else, it won't really take them that far. Um, and I just use that as one example. There could be so many others. Uh, Rechab, this Rechab, the father of Jonadab, maybe, he purposed that he and his family would be free from the encumbrances of excess, and he took steps to ensure that, and God honored that. What purpose are we teaching, or will we teach our children? What do they see as our underlying purpose in life? What, what, do, they, what do they get from our example? Um, do we have a purpose? Oh, we're out of time here. So, I think I'm going to stop there. I had one more, one more, but uh, I think that's enough. And God bless you. And God bless you with uh, wisdom as you unsuppress and give discernment to your children in those you're example too.